0: Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the All Weather Fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode ninety-six of Baltimoreans—the show that, like Chicago White Sox broadcaster Hawk Harrelson, occasionally has a vaguely orgasmic response to events in baseball games.
1: Yes, yes, hell yes.
0: Why? <laughs> well, now that we're all good <laughs> just, and uncomfortable, just awkward. <laughs> We've got a fantastic show on tap for you tonight, folks. In just a few minutes, we're going to chat with Jacob Wallace and Paul Goldsmith-Pinkham, our friends who, besides being doctoral candidates in public health and economics respectively, are delving into the advanced metrics of basketball with a new blog called Ballometrics. Although, perhaps because they are savvy economical types, they haven't paid for the URL. So you need to type in ballometrics.wordpress.com to find them. It is worth it, however. It is... <laughs> Uh, They've run the analysis, and it is worth the extra (laughs) finger strokes on the keyboard to get to the blog. We'll also bring you the latest installment of our seventh-inning sketch series, and this week we've taken our game to the next level. As many of you know, we've traditionally used that portion of the program to play previously unreleased audio recordings of grave historical significance, many of which you've told us have upended your perception of baseball and indeed the very nature of human existence. Well, folks, what would you say? If I told you that on this week's show, we're going to play you some archival audio from the future. Oh, snap! That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We've gotten our hands on some tape from a radio show that hasn't even aired yet. And we think you'll agree. The implications are pretty staggering. Of course, no episode of Baltimore Ons would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Cindy Real Franchise Report. Alert listeners will of course recall Sandy's 46 and two-thirds innings of decent middle relief for the 2006 Orioles, but he's best known for spelling his last name with an extraneous letter L. That's Rial, R-L-E-A-L. This spelling grants Sandy the number three spot in the elusive top five most unpronounceable names <laughs> in baseball history, ahead of Tim Barger and Drungo Hayswood, but just behind Heine Main and Bristol Robot Ham Lord. While those last couple guys may have the edge on Cindy in the category of linguistic bizarreitude, I dare them to try posting a higher walk rate than Cindy's (laughs) 4.4. Sam, I just want to point out that there was a time on this air when you
2: warned Baltimoreans that they would never hear the words Drungo Hayeswood again. (laughs)
0: And I want you to know that I am thankful that you were wrong. (laughs) It is not the first time, as I'm sure Scotty will be pointing out to us, at some point (laughs) now ladies and gentlemen it has already in just two short months been a very confusing baseball season at various points it has seemed like the orioles pitching and defense are playing for two different teams at the same time robinson cano has only hit two home runs charlie blackman charlie blackman (laughs) is 10th in the majors in batting average aging coot josh beckett is throwing no hitters while the bright-eyed and virtuous Jose Fernandez sits out the remainder of the season. Major League Baseball Advanced Media's legal department is randomly assassinating (laughs) podcasts, including several of our sister-wife programs here on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member. And into this frothy and mysterious admixture, we're now going to introduce yet another loosely connected and scatteringly researched edition of our program, which I'm sure... Has you worried that you'll be unable to bear the confusion of this modern world any longer, and that by week's end you'll be wandering the streets of Lithuania, moaning and clutching your chest with no memory of how you arrived there? (laughs) Much like intern Scotty. Perhaps this has already happened, in which case it is astounding to me that you've decided to listen to this (laughs) week's show. But for those of you who have not yet succumbed to the encroaching madness, take heart. My esteemed colleague Alan Smith is here for episode 96, To remind us that there is indeed some purpose to all this. That it is all, in fact, connected.
2: Number 96 is, I hope, a healing number. It's the number that Michael Sam has been given by the Rams. Which, while clearly premature, given that he's not yet made the squad, has granted many people the ability to show their support for the entire Sam experience by purchasing his jersey. This brings up something I tried to get around to when we were calling the Orioles game on Friday, but roundly failed to get off my chest. It seems to me that we're living in an ever more politically correct time, Baltimoreans, where there's a lot of thinking about language and how we speak of and to each other. Now, I would embrace this as generally a good thing. This is not to say that there's no space for jokes or off-color remarks, but the Louis CK rule, I think, is applying more and more That humor is best when it punches upwards, not downwards. And I think it should apply that way. Now I'm going to lay out a bunch of things here and see if I can draw a coherent line between them. I don't think these are all the same. I'm not saying they're anywhere close to equivalent. There's no equivalency here happening. But here are a bunch of things for your consideration. Ray Rice has at least from a language and PR perspective, made a bad situation of knocking his girlfriend out, even worse with a press conference where she apologized to him, but he forgot to apologize to her. I think the problem that Ray Rice has is the video, and that created such a public outrage, said Atlanta lawyer David Cornwell, a former NFL counsel who has represented Ben Roethlisberger, Dante Stallworth, and New York Yankees star Alex Rodriguez. I disagree with Mr. Cornwall here. I think the problem that Ray Rice has is that he punched a woman in the head, and she lost consciousness as a result. Another thing for you to consider. There's a boycott of the Rams and Michael Sam by the far right, because they don't want him to be a role model for their children. They're not going to Rams games, they're not buying Rams equipment, etc. etc. Another thing. Josh Lukey is pitching for the Rays. Josh Lukey is a convicted rapist. Now, Josh Lukey is just the one I can think of right off the top of my head, because he's the one that's been caught, prosecuted, convicted, etc. But he's not alone in this athletic environment. And finally, there is the horrible and shocking attack which left seven people dead in California. Now again, the things I just listed are disparate things. They are not equivalent or overtly equal in any way. But there's something that happens, and I think we see it with this kid, Elliot Roger, when rhetoric takes hold and becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. This dude, Roger, his definition of what it means to be a man is so twisted and backwards that I mostly don't even feel mad at him, just deeply, deeply sad. Now, if you don't know the story of Elliot Roger yet, I don't even suggest that you look it up. It's gross and it's tragic, and I know that there are thousands of things that were at play in that shooting. Mental illness, misogyny, online video games, um, the ease with which he could go get guns. But there is clearly a cultural element that allowed him to live in a world where women's bodies are viewed as objects, and also objects which he measured his own happiness and self-worth against. At the end of the day, that seems to be the through line to all of this for me. When we find ways of justifying some bad, bad things when it comes to our sports folk, I think we compound a general feeling of unsafety that is, I would say, already too much a part of our society for women. Yes, all women. And so, as I so often do in times of confusion and tragedy, I turned today to The Onion and a fantastic headline in the wake of the Rogers shooting. Quote, No way to prevent this says only nation where this regularly happens now we sam we make jokes about Domin young being on the orioles and being a less than stellar dude we kvetch about david ortiz and other sluggers who fit the profile of steroid users we are flabbergasted when ray rice somehow manages to forget to apologize to his wife in his press conference about beating his wife and we wring our hands and we look for answers when a young man kills six random people and then himself and I think that we should. But in that last case, we seem to point to culture with a capital C or mental illness with a capital M. And by so doing, we wash our own hands of our responsibility in that thing. And it seems like we're actually more involved than we want to admit. So with all respect to my good friend, Jake English from Bird's Eye View, I think we do have to keep talking about Ray Rice. I know that Jake wants Ray Rice to leave the conversation for all the right reasons but I think we have to keep talking about misogyny and violence against women in a way that keeps the focus on something concrete. And not because I think that their one act, however grossly and completely unacceptable it might be, means that they should suffer forever. But because next season, when the Ravens land to play ball, or next week, when Luki comes out of the pen for the Rays, there'll be a bunch of people painting these guys as warriors and men, and I don't want that to be how we define masculinity in this culture. I want to wish that these guys would just go away, that that would be fantastic, but I think that that actually lets me as a dude off the hook, and us as sports fans off the hook. And I'm going to clamber down off my soapbox here and get back to talking about the Orioles, but I do want to point out to everyone that, no, um, we actually can do something about this, and I don't think that the Onion article is correct. We can by how we talk, by how we raise our kids, by who we cheer for, and I'm going to
0: try. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Cindy Real franchise report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and Beyond and assign them an objective quality score. First up on the report this week, Sam. Zach Britton
2: enters play tonight with an ERA of 0.65 and a whip of 0.86. And perhaps most critically of late, three fairly heartburn-free saves in three potentially heartburn-inducing opportunities. Sam, what do you make of this new development at the back of the Orioles bullpen?
0: I am going to give this one Brian Kenny orgasm, since we're giving <laughs> weird old men affiliated with Major League Baseball orgasm <laughs> references free reign on this evening's program. The reason I'm going to give it that is because, you know, Brian Kenny is a big fan of taking us to task for worshiping these kind of old line baseball stats and achievements the thing about zach britton's emergence as the quote-unquote closer that we should celebrate is that i think it's proof of an idea that gets written about in baseball prospectus a lot and that i have really come around to agree with which is that closers are made not born we spent a lot of time last year bemoaning the fact that buck showalter refused to move away from jim johnson as the closer despite overwhelming evidence that he could no longer close games And the pushback always seemed to be, well, he's a proven closer because he saved 50-some games the year before. And what we are seeing the Orioles do right now is go with the most effective pitcher in the most high leverage situations, and that is working plain and simple. We're not anointing uh, Zach Britton with a soft meat crown that says closer (laughs) on it. And, and saying that he's going to be our closer for the next five years. And we only gave Tommy Hunter a very short leash before it became clear that he couldn't get the job done.
2: I, uh, I agree with all that you just said. I'm going to give this a ground out back to the pitcher for an easy out. Um, because <laughs> as we know, uh, Zach Britton has one of the best ground ball to fly ball ratios of anybody in the major leagues. I think he actually has the best ratio right now which is exactly what I want from my closer. I don't want anything up in the air, especially at Camden Yards. My only (laughs) disappointment in all of this is I was hoping that uh, Tommy Hunter was going to set a record for the most saves after allowing up to three hits and or walks (laughs) over the course of an inning. And I'm a little bit disappointed, if we're totally honest with ourselves, about at seductive tommy h being a little bit turfed by this change but i think he'll bounce back and keep tweeting and i hope that he does
0: maybe maybe he'll be able to find a humorous photo of zach Britton that prompts a persona for twitter actually i'd like to officially issue that as a challenge
2: (laughs) i've already seen two um uh zach Britton parody accounts popping up so uh the internet She's a crowded place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I mean like I think we could pro- there's some mileage to be gotten from nervous Brian Mattis. Sure. But not as m- seductive Tommy Hunter. That's a stronger play and that's why we're well, not the, in that game.
2: The funniest part about seductive Tommy Hunter really is that it still works in the seventh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Item number 2 on this week's Sandy Real Franchise Report concerns the latest development in Tommy John Gate 2014. <laughs> In response to Giordano Ventura leaving his most recent start with elbow discomfort, Jeff Passan pointed out in a tweet, If Ventura needs TJ, seven of nine hardest-throwing big league starters from 2013 will have had it. Only three of next 21 underwent it. While Ventura's MRI appears to have come back clean today, Passan's point may provide some insight into the rash of UCL injuries over the last two seasons. Smith, what do you make of it?
2: I would say that my rating for this is a uh, a challenge at first base which is not overturned. A very close play but with no new evidence necessarily that manages to sway the umpire one way or the other. And frankly, I think that there's a lot we have to look at in terms of development and a lot we have to look at in terms of arm, uh, you know, pitches on young arms and the earliness that we're throwing these guys, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think it's more interesting to me that it's all young guys who are getting it. And a lot of our sort of people who have figured out how to throw over the long term seem to be able to avoid the surgery. What do you think?
0: Well, uh, I'm going to give it one Matt Stairs. Do you remember Matt Stairs? (laughs) Matt Stairs was a guy who had no discernible baseball skills of any description, including facial hair. Like a lot of people would say, oh, but that guy has a hell of a beard. He's a real ball player. No, Matt Stairs had no neck. His, his beard was terrible. Really he,
2: bringing nothing to the table.
0: He could not field. He could not hit. But he was a hell of a pinch hitter. <laughs> oh. And he, he played for the Phillies. And he would come in in these high leverage situations and just cold clock fastballs over the fence against all possible rationale and logic. And uh, the reason that I give this one Matt Stairs is because I think it's an interesting referendum on the effect of advanced ad- analytics in Major League Baseball scouting department. I think it may well be a reflection of this move towards the fielding independent pitching version of... Of pitching talent that we've been seeing over the last few years which is can you come in and get strikeouts can you come in and avoid walks can you keep the ball on the ground can you not give up home run and usually that comes along with throwing very hard and i think we've been through enough cycles of scouting now that that's why there have been so many top prospects who reflect mm-hmm. those skills and abilities and those are the guys that are flaming out by and large, if we take Passan's logic here. And I think the problem with that is that overemphasis on this one statistic has moved us towards this uniform ideal of pitching, that it's all about that kind of fielding independent pitching uh, approach. And we it's been a long time since we have seen somebody come up who really – understands how to pitch from a holistic perspective
2: the greg maddox is of the world
0: the greg maddox is of the world and and sure we have guys who have shown flashes of that you know we have our michael wakas and we have our garrett coles and uh garrett
2: throws hard yo
0: he does he does he does He's,
2: he's on that list of of the top nine
0: yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so maybe Jeremy Hellickson would be a better example. Uh, but he turns out to not be a very good pitcher, and he's hurt this year, so he's a terrible example. Um, <laughs> but it, it's been a long time since we had uh, somebody's scouting department produce a Mark Burley, yep. say. Yep. And that doesn't mean you should be trying to cultivate a Matt Stairs or a Mark Burley. But we have to leave room for the emergence of those kind of guys, or or else we're going to find ourselves in this kind of situation on a repeated basis. And finally, folks, item number three on the report
2: this week, MLB announced the current vote leaders in the 2014 All-Star Game balloting today. And guess what? Derek Jeter, who enters play tonight batting two seventy three with one home run and 10 RBI, is the leading vote-getter at shortstop. Now, a cursory examination of the numbers suggests that Alexei Ramirez, currently slashing... 320, 355, 483 with seven home runs has perhaps been the better player in 2014. But as we learned in the past, Sam, that's not what the All-Star game is all about, is it?
0: I'm going to give this 2,632 points. (laughs) Now that, of course, is uh, one point for every consecutive game that Cal Ripken played during his streak. Uh, And the reason I give it that many points is because I think any Orioles fan who is upset about Derek Jeter being the leading vote-getter at shortstop, uh, also would have to be upset about Cal Ripken being elected as the starting shortstop and later starting third baseman in the All-Star Game for all those years, when he really, from a statistical standpoint, was not the best player at that position. That's remarkably We level-headed of you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I have my moments. All right. I have my moments. I don't think there's any problem with the All-Star Game in and of itself. I think what the problem is is that the marketing around it is... It's the summer classic where the best ball players chosen by the fans compete against one another and it means something. I think we should throw that all out and just call it what it is, which is a popularity contest. Now, you're going to say, obviously, Major League Baseball would never do that. You're right, which is why I think if you want to have an all-star game voted on by the fans that more accurately reflects the realities of talent level, I think you should borrow uh, the NFL's model and do it more like the Pro Bowl, where Hmm. it happens after the season is over, after the entire regular season, after the World Series, so that people have had some time to really... Uh, reflect on the on the full season on-field contribution and cast their votes with that kind of distance and perspective. I think if you did that, you would see a lot more fans looking at things again from a more and we're going to use this phrase a lot on the show tonight, but from a more holistic. Uh, standpoint than you do now. And
2: now I have a couple of reasons why your plan won't work. Okay. Um, one of which is if we do it after the World Series, that means that most of the players have been shut down for a long time. True. Um, and so anyone who wants to pitch in said classic would not be able to do that. Uh, plus, baseball in November is going to be a tough sell.
0: I, I also... Um, th- well, they could play in Hawaii. Okay, sure. I also think that the All-Star Game shouldn't happen. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, I'm going to give
2: this a uh, a good cloud kicking of dirt by Earl Weaver. Okay. Because, first of all, I reject and denounce the fact that I cannot hate Derek Dieter and also love Cal Ripken because Double Think is an active part of my brain. <laughs> but also... My problem with all of this is that we seem to historically judge people by how many all-star games they made. If you're going back and like debating people in the 50s and 60s, one of the things that you put on their resume besides their career slash line and the number of home runs and RBI they hit is how many times they were a gold glover and how many times they've been an all-star team. And that's how we seem to measure people historically, which is great. I have no problem with that, but you can't do that and then dilute it now in a modern era. And when you have fans who are allowed to vote someone like Derek Jeter in again and again and again, and I guess to the same extent, Cal Ripken and David Ortiz, who's going to win at DH over Nelson Cruz. Despite which is ridiculous. Despite Nelson Cruz having an infinitely better first two months of the season than David Ortiz, which has nothing to do with how well they're playing and thus makes the whole comparing people based on numbers of all-star appearances essentially moot.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I think the, I think the thing, though, that's important about that is that Fans voting for the All-Star team is an important way of of us keeping in mind who the game is for, you know? And and when we get too much into All-Stars being um, some kind of objective way of measuring somebody's talent, I think it it gets close to that argument that I don't like, which is that there's a predetermined way that a game would play out if it weren't for the meddlesome <laughs> factors of reality. <laughs> sure. Uh, and and that's, not, that, that's a less fun way of looking at the game, and that's a less fun way of walking through life, if I may. Fair, fair. All right, folks. Well, let's jump on the phone now. Uh, speaking of advanced statistics and objective analysis, with our friends Paul and Jacob, who have just started a new blog about advanced statistical analysis in basketball. It's called Ballometrics, and they join us in just a moment, right here on Baltimore.
2: So Sam and I are noted sabermetrics haters. This is well known. And uh, we're also fans of baseball, one of the more number-driven sports out there. Can you imagine what kind of nerds must try and bring a rigorous economic analysis to a free-flowing team-based game like basketball? Jacob Wallace and Paul Goldsmith-Pinkham, our guests now, are just those nerds, as they have launched a new blog, Ballometrics, Dedicated to the finer points of advanced basketball analysis gentlemen, welcome to Baltimoreans.
3: Thank you very much for having us Now I'm the, looking forward to making a fool of myself.
2: The two of you are <laughs> um, in, in 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 that vein um, to put this mildly extremely educated gentleman Paul, how close are you to being a doctor? Uh, I'm
3: not as close as I would like I'm in one <laughs> one year out one year out. That's pretty one close.
2: That's pretty <laughs> close. <laughs> <laughs> And you are going to be a, a doctor of economics. Is that correct?
0: Yes. That's and right.
2: And Jake, you are going to be what kind of doctor?
3: Health policy slash economics.
2: Health policy slash economics. Health economics. Okay. Health so economics. is
0: that now is that is that one doctorate spread across two disciplines, or are you a double doctor?
1: One doctorate spread across two disciplines. But on a resume, who will know the difference? <laughs>
2: Um, so, as two very smart analysts with big social issues on the mind, why do you dedicate time and love and energy to basketball?
1: I feel like it's an opportunity to just be wildly irresponsible with statistics.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the Mark Twain argument.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's basically, I don't think there's any
3: reason necessarily to think that number doing something with statistics makes things any better than any other sports article that's written with a particular like a particular motif or thesis in mind, right? So you read any opinion piece, it has some thesis and, and moral description or something else in it, and you may or may not agree with their points. In the same way, when you bring statistics to the table, you're doing the same thing, and there may be things that are they're omitting and so forth, but everybody has to agree sort of on what the premise is
2: so in from th- from that perspective before we dive too far into the arguments you guys make in ballometrics, metrics, how do you quantify um, how good someone looks on the floor in basketball especially when it comes to defense're we're, we're, we're baseball nerds over here so what's the uh what are the good defensive statistics in in basketball these days
1: We posted about the new this new ESPN statistic called real plus minus and we like it because unlike most of the volume statistics that people typically focus on in basketball, like player efficiency rating and other things. um, It is a more holistic statistic that captures your impact on both the offensive and defensive ends. Hmm. And it, for example, it takes into account how well you do setting picks off the ball. It takes into account how well you do, um, you know, rolling on a pick. It takes, it takes into account how well you do covering someone else's man when they've been beat. It it does things that other statistics can't do and that aren't well measured because it asks what happens while you're on the floor to the point differential between your team and the other team, controlling for who's on the floor with you on your side and who's on the floor against you on the other side. And that's the key innovation in Real Plus Minus relative to the old classic Plus Minus, where if I'm on the floor with LeBron, my Plus Minus is going to look really good. That doesn't mean (laughs) I'm doing it. Right, right.
0: So it in in a way it gets at the the circumstances that they're in are having an effect on the way that they're playing.
1: Yeah, and I think like an exa- a good example of this would be Nick Collison on on Oklahoma City. Nick Collison is one of the highest rated players in the NBA. I think he's in the top 10 by this statistic. Wow. That like blows that blew my mind and it has been highlighted as one of the potential problems with this statistic. <laughs> but clearly there's something that, that he's doing when he's out on the floor. You know this just just looking at the cystic and seeing that he has a very high you know DRPM doesn't tell you what it is but it tells you that he's out there he's doing something right it's probably not something we're very good at quantifying setting picks, switching well on defense, hustling, getting contested rebounds versus uncontested rebounds. Um, those are the types of, of things he, he might be doing that are being picked up by something like real plus minus which just offers a little more insight I think into your contribution.
0: When you look at these advanced metrics in basketball or in baseball, I think a lot of people perceive it as a way of quantifying something that you would not otherwise be able to see. But what you're saying, actually, is that it quantifies things in such a way that it doesn't explain why somebody is so valuable. It just makes you realize that somebody you don't perceive as valuable is actually extremely valuable. And the the baseball example I would cite for this is Ben Zobrist for the Tampa Bay Rays, who by the equivalent statistic, it sounds like roughly to real plus minus uh, in baseball, which is wins against replacement, is I think yep. number three or four uh, huh. in the last I think seven years in terms of value. But in the, like very few people own Ben Zobrist jerseys, and yet, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yet, it, there's something that these statistics are able to suss out about him that makes it clear why it's so important for the Rays' success to have him out there.
3: When so is he paid? Is he paid quite a bit of money? That's like, that's sort of an
0: no. He a makes, makes almost nothing. Question, nobody, right? nobody on the Tampa
2: Bay Rays is paid money though. <laughs> even even their like <laughs> But well, so why readers. isn't he
3: getting offered a contract from somewhere else though? I mean that's sort of the thing that's yeah. so unusual about doing these. This is one of the things that came up for us. Was like you would think that there are smart people who are thinking about this who want to pay these guys money and, like, want to get the good players. So either we're missing something and they're smarter than we are or they're not, like, getting the most effective team, like, in some way. I mean, this is the classic moneyball argument, right?
2: Right, which is, I mean, in fact, that's that's where we wanted to go next and sort of dive into the specifics of, of the two blog entries. But if great defense is being totally undervalued from a cost perspective, um... Should, is is that how a a Pacers team or another like sort of small market squad can make themselves relevant?
1: I think it's tough to think about how you would take a statistic like real plus minus and construct an efficient uh, championship winning team. I think that is possibly, or I think that is definitely a valid criticism or you know limitation of this statistic. It doesn't tell you who to put with who. And how to most efficiently construct a five man roster or or a, a five man lineup or a thirteen man roster, which is I think is like a fascinating question because it does seem like why don't why wouldn't you just pick up Tim Duncan, Taj Gibson, Nick Collison, Andre Iguodala, and then maybe shell out for one super superstar? Like, that, that like a Durant.
2: that sounds like a winning basketball team to me.
3: <laughs> there is an element to which and I didn't even talk about it in the post, but when I was reading about the salary cap is so interesting, is like Basketball, and I don't know how baseball does this, but basketball has this sort of two-tiered salary cap sort of thing going on, right? There's like a real salary cap, which is roughly – like it's a little under $60 million. And then there's the luxury tax, right? Right. And the way that it works is that once you go over the salary cap, there are certain restrictions about the way trades can happen. And there are restrictions about how you can sign free agents. But there's no restrictions on making signings for your own players. So what happens is that there's an incentive, like we haven't talked about this, Jake, but basically there's an incentive to give bigger contracts to your own guys because you can go over the salary cap without any restrictions if you're re-signing your own players to bigger contracts. But getting bigger contracts from other places is much more difficult if you're over the salary cap getting big free agent guys requires you to move a lot of money around and it, it becomes a lot
2: less efficient potentially.
3: So you incentivize so
2: like, you incentivize potential very hard there.
3: Yeah, exactly. So I think that's why potentially draft picks are so highly valued because right. if you're a team like the Lakers and you can get a guy early on, then you can like spend a lot of money on him. You don't have to worry as much. Um, and this is why I think in basketball there's so much discussion about moving salaries around because you really have to worry about how you can sign people and so forth. So like a player like Boozer in his last year becomes more valuable than he was like a year before, because he's, you can move around. He can be moved around and like be used to get a guy who you would sign for a lot more. Like you can trade for a guy who has a lot and then the contract expires. And so the guy who's picking it up. So like, for example, Boozer could be traded for Carmelo and they have like potentially similar contracts And so people are okay with those sorts of things, which are very bizarre and, like, don't have anything to do about, like, constructing the right team. But it's just getting back to your point about, like, constructing the most efficient five-man team. Right. You really got to get guys early. Like, Taj Gibson is a good example. It's like they can sign him even though they were over the cap to a bigger contract. So...
0: But so just to go back to this idea of like whether you would build an entire, whether you would use this, like for example, the real plus minus statistic to build out an entire team, isn't part of the value of tracking these kind of statistics that it allows you to be somewhat more dynamic in the way that you're looking at the league again in a more holistic sense, like you were saying? Because for example, the athletics were able to uh, look at an environment in baseball where for years, people had just said, like, looked at hitting as batting average, home runs, and RBIs. And right. they realized that there was this market inefficiency, to use the phrase that was overused in the book. We uh, love that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, of on-base percentage. And so they exploited that. But then eventually, the league caught up. And now... Uh, you know, we're, I think, coming to the end of this in baseball, but a lot of people decided, okay, pitching strikeouts, that's the new thing. We need to build as many uh, arms in the minor leagues who can just miss bats, and that's going to allow us to dominate the the hitters, regardless of whether or not they have a good batting eye. And But now that's probably going to start changing again, because all those guys are starting to get hurt. So it, by building out these analytics departments, teams are able to evolve more rapidly uh, rather than just like finding one or two advanced statistics and kind of like hanging their hat on them, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that, that. I mean, I think it's it's the search for value, and as soon as someone identifies a formula that works and seems to work consistently, it, you know, everyone kind of updates their model, and then you gotta, you know, you kind of gotta search for the next statistic. The and Spurs, that's why I think the Spurs, unfortunately a lot of this phenomenon. Is, the Spurs, cor- the Spurs in general, I think are like a huge X factor. <laughs> Someone needs to study that team and unpack whatever the special sauce is. Yeah, but I, I do think that um, there is, unfortunately, a lot of proprietary uh, modeling done, and so it does make this a little trickier as an analyst without connections to NBA front offices and stuff to try and get <laughs> and stuff. Because sure, I, I mean, I think some of these questions about who's on the f- who's on the court with you know what combinations of folks are on the court. I have to credit Tyler with this idea of thinking about who's on the court together and how they interact to produce wins or produce, you know, point differential is really interesting, particularly when you're thinking about constructing a team and how to build a team. And that kind of analytic stuff has not, I mean, there's nothing like that out there yet.
0: So uh, as a way to close here, coming up next, we're doing a little sketch about the potential of sabermetrics in other walks of life beyond sports so if you guys could pick one non-sports space to bring some Freakonomics-style statistical analysis to bear, what would it be?
1: Office water cooler.
0: <laughs> there, was barely, there was barely any hesitation <laughs> on the poll of office water cooler. <laughs>
3: It's like that's like measuring your friends. It's like you to, which of your which is your highest value friend? Hey, friends above replacement. Look, we have
2: I have I have a good friend who uh, every time I go out with him, I just know I'm going to be paying a tax. You know, he's not going to throw in everything. Like the we're, the bill is always going to be a little bit short. If we if at the end of the night someone you know doesn't know who this last beer is, I'm going to end up paying for it. That,
3: that's are you a talking tax. about Rob DeVogue? Are you talking about <laughs> Rob right
0: now? <laughs> We don't need name names. He's cod. he's he's talking about me, you guys. It's okay. No, no, no. <laughs>
1: But he offers value in so many other intangible ways. You need a statistic right? like, like bar hopping real plus minus.
0: <laughs> there you go. There you go. Wingman <laughs> wing above replacement.
1: We, wow, that's a great one. That one you could actually have some measurable data on too.
0: <laughs> right,
1: yeah. That would, that would actually be really interesting. That, no, that's a great idea.
0: Yeah, deals um, sealed per to. drink bought.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. I like that one. We're going to settle on that one. Wingman, wingman. Okay. Yeah, Wingman of Replacement. I like that.
2: All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, Paul Goldsmith Pinkham, Jacob Wallace. You can also read Jacob's little brother, Tyler Wallace, all on Ballometrics, uh, which would be ballometrics.wordpress.com.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for joining us.
2: Definitely. Thanks a Thank lot. You. You. Later, fellas.
0: You're listening to Baltimore. the home of the all-weather fam. I'm Sam Dingman. And this here is Alan Smith. Now, morons,
2: we typically leave the high-level sabermetric analysis to the professionals at Bird's Eye View or over at Ballmetrics. But we couldn't help but notice a recent piece in The Atlantic about Sabermetrics 2.0, which, according to the piece's author, Hayden Higgins, is moving beyond measuring the performance of individuals and into measuring how they work together. Being the mathematical skeptics you love us for being, you you do love us for being mathematical skeptics, right? Great. We were prepared to dismiss this piece and return to salivating over the mid-1990s RBI totals when we discovered the tape we're about to play for you, which appears to be from a radio broadcast in the not-too-distant future. Now, leaving aside the troublesome fact that we've apparently reverted to cassette tape technology in the not-too-distant future, the audio contained on said tape provides a harrowing look at the burgeoning power of sabermetrics.
0: Welcome back to Sports of Yesteryear, where we traipse back through the dusty annals of sports history and remember a more barbaric time when unaugmented human athleticism ruled the day and the outcomes of professional sporting events were not directly tied to global politics and campaign donations. I'm your host, Milo Monarch, and today we're delving into the humble beginnings of the sabermetrics philosophy that underpins every aspect of our daily lives. You know, it hasn't always been this way, sports fans. In fact, based on what we know about the pre-sabermetric man, he was unable to accept that the clear mathematical truths which affect sports outcomes are real. As children now learn in elementary school, Sabermetrics 2.0 began to examine the possibility that advanced statistical analysis could measure more than just individual athletic accomplishment. This was the moment when we began to understand the powerful mathematical forces that bring us together as a human community. It wasn't until later, however, that we began to realize that even ritual practices which had been previously understood as purely spiritual were in fact also governed by the sweet light of arithmetic. Research revealed that the act of drawing a cross in the dirt on the pitcher's mound, or the series of Hail Marys said whilst adjusting one's batting gloves, actually did lead to concrete outcomes on the field of play. Further research involving curses, hexes, spells, and the sacrifice of prairie dogs revealed the mathematical truths behind Sabermetrics 3.0, and also resulted in the tragic death of Brian Kenny, whose funeral was subsequently held at the MLB Fan Cave on West 4th Street in Manhattan.
2: We are gathered here today in loving memory of Brian Kenny, a great man whose tragic and untimely death at the teeth of a pack of rabid prairie dogs bent on revenge has, at the very least, resulted in the knowledge that the souls of small mammals can exert a powerful influence on the outcome of day games played after Memorial Day. While we call this metric Day Sass, it is in your honor, Brian Kenny, And wherever you are now, you are sure to be proud to know that 21 of 30 MLB teams now employ a full-time shaman as a part of their metrics department.
0: He was too young!
2: Actually, Brian's lifespan was a mere 3.2 years shy of the average achieved by male correspondents of Brian's weight and height. Let us pray.
0: It wasn't until Sabermetrics 4.0 when we began to unlock the mystery of the human genome. Applying the science of fielding independent pitching at the subatomic level allowed us to observe that much like FIP determined a pitcher's relative autonomy in terms of game outcomes, so too can the precise level of atomic autonomy thus be calculated. Naturally, once we knew a person's AFPC, atomic frequency per cell, we were able to control them. Of course, much like the 3.0 generation, This new world was not without casualties, as this audio from a congressional hearing at the time will attest. Yes.
2: Yes, ma'am. I understand that you are distraught and that you have a certain number of very understandable questions. We hope that this session will answer them for you. Now, as near as we can tell... Our attempt to mend the ulnar collateral ligament of the Diamondbacks prospect in question appears to have turned a plurality of his body into chalk. Now, our best guess puts the remnants of the actual UCL somewhere in the orbit of Mars. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, ma'am. But the good news, the good news, and we are ready to admit here that this doesn't do a lot for young Winslow. But the good news is that we have dispatched one of our best space recovery teams to retrieve this battle-tested ligament, and we are very optimistic. Very optimistic. This may be the final piece in the rebuilding of Zombie Roy Halliday that we've been promising fans for years.
0: Sabermetrics Five, or as it is commonly known, Sabermetrics Vista brings us into the modern era, with the discovery that the rules that once governed baseball were applicable and effective tools of political manipulation and military might. Few could have anticipated Estonia's rapid rise to global domination before the controversial hiring of Billy Bean as Secretary of Defense and Jeff Lunau as the head of the Estonian secret police. Who could forget their legendary introductory press conference? Yeah, you know, this just seemed like the right move for me right now. Ever since
2: the A's have won the last 93 consecutive World Series, I'm looking for a new challenge. And when I look at Estonia with its lack of resources, its lack of infrastructure, its depleted farm system, literally, and long-suffering fan base, again, literally, well, you know, I get I get excited to try something new here. I'm really just thrilled with the people I've got working here with me as well. Uh, Scott Magnus has agreed to come on as a talent evaluator and personal food taster. Uh, and of course, I'm really just thrilled to be working with Jeff, who I have admired for a long time, and who I'd like to invite up to the mic now to say a few words. Um, Jeff? Jeff? Has anyone... Has any... Oh, God, no. No! Jeff! We weren't going to start till after the press conference! Everyone, get out of here! Run!
0: What does the future hold for Sabermetrics? Current research suggests that we're close to reanimating dinosaurs and forcing them to tap dance for our own amusement, altering the very orbit of our planet around the sun, and even finding a cure for the common cold. Well, that's all the time we have for Sports of Yesteryear. We'll end this episode, as we always do, with a stirring rendition of our Estonian National Anthem. bleak future, Smith, awaits us if this tape is to be believed. I have no reason to believe uh, that our
2: sources are incorrect in giving it to us. I think I think uh, that's one of the things about future is
0: once it's written, you can't undo it. It's true. It is true. We we have so few things to hold on to uh, as certainty in life. And unfortunately, the fact that in the future we'll all be Estonian citizens is one of them. I, for one, plan to buy
2: Scott Magnus a beer. <laughs>
0: It sounds, from what I gather, he's an IPA man. Great. So I feel like we'd have a lot to drink about. Great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time we have on uh, episode 96 of Baltimore Ons. We thank you very much for tuning in. But before we go, we just did want to say very quickly, on Friday and end of last week, as many of you know, Alan and I did a live radio broadcast of the game between the Orioles and the Indians, and we just wanted to say thank you very much, as sincerely as we possibly can, to all of you who tuned in It was a really, really, really fun experience, and we really appreciate the fact that you guys wanted to share it with us, and we hope that uh, we'll be able to do it again soon.
2: There were a pile, just a literal pile of of animal corpses on my front uh, stoop when I got home from recording this with Sam, which I think means that there's a series of corrections that we fucked up during the broadcast that Scotty wanted us to let know about, but... We had so much fun that we just decided we were going to burn the bodies and move on to the next one. So thanks, Scotty, for keeping us on point. But, you know, it was our first attempt, so we're, we're allowed some mistakes.
0: All of the carcasses prairie dogs, interestingly enough. A connection? Oh,
2: I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that.
0: That's okay. We were riding the high from the broadcast. Deep. But Damn. in all seriousness, folks, uh, thank you Watch very much. Watch your back, to, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <all laughs> I love the idea that he's listening to this and is like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much to all of you for joining us. Uh, and if you have ideas and suggestions for how we could do an even more awesome job next time, or if you have any feedback on the program whatsoever, please don't hesitate to share it with us. Baltimoreans podcast at gmail.com, or you could leave us a review in the iTunes store. Baltimoreans is the name of the program in case you've been listening to it the entire time without knowing that. <laughs>
2: There's also, um, of course, we should probably mention at be morons is how you get at us on Twitter, which many of you did during the broadcast. And I think made the experience of calling a baseball game a lot like the experience of sitting on a couch with a bunch of my friends watching a baseball game. And, and, and isn't that, that was way it
0: should be? awesome. Isn't that what it should be like, y'all?
2: So also thank you to um, Paul Goldsmith Pinkham and Jacob Wallace about to be doctor and doctor. Uh, For for joining us on the show today Dr.
0: Doctor (laughs) Dr. Doctor doctor.
2: And um, we probably played some music during this show But yeah, whatever
0: (laughs) Oh yes we did Haven't decided what some of it is yet But uh, we'll give you the the broad strokes Uh, The intro is the the music But (laughs) this is the first time I've done this Extemporaneously in some time (laughs) And I'ma get it wrong So hang on to your butts (laughs) Okay The first thing we do is we play the theme song. Right. That's by Marshall York. Check. That one I got. Then we play a little clip from Town Hall. The song is working for another song. I got that one. In between segments, we play this song called Birdland. That's by a band named Weather Report from the album Heavy Weather. Boom. Got it. Done. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. (laughs) At the end of the show, okay, Fish. Right. From Sample in a Jar. Yeah. And right now, if all has gone according to plan... You are here, or if you're still listening, you're hearing... Which <laughs> are highly doubtful at this point. <laughs> kicking my heart around by the Black Crows. And uh, now we need a pun. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
2: um, what do you call Henry Rudia when he is a... 3-year-old child who shows up at his great aunt's house.
0: Uh Henry Little Red Riding Hoodia. <laughs> I was going with Henry. Oh, aren't you just so cute, Rudia? Cute, Rudia. <laughs> yep, sure. We'll we'll go with that. <laughs>